Warning! The following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. I still think that it's an absolute work of genius. Even though it doesn't always run, or even run on time. I'll admit it's incredibly convenient most of the time. Look, if you aren't from NYC, the MTA subway is the greatest public transit ever. But if you are from the city, it's the bane of our existence. But it's what we have, and when it runs, it's the best! And has one of the most recognizable maps in the world. The subway line map is pretty well known. And it's very well thought out. Well, at least in Manhattan. And well, except for the Second Avenue, actually. Which is a touchy subject for many people, so we should probably not delve into that. I wonder what it must have been like to design and draw up the plans for these lines. I don't know, but I wonder if who drew them up knew the kind of lasting impact they'd have on this amazing city. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. To Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we're going to be discussing the adventurous show, If Then. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. What if you could redo parts of your life? What if you could make a different choice? What if? What if? Well, today we're going to examine a show that asks just that, as we examine the dissecting show, If Then. The star-packed show, both on stage and behind the scenes, arrived on Broadway to excited anticipation and to strong box office sales with its unconventional storyline and soaring score. But first, let us get to the starting place before we choose which path we want to go down. It then was conceived by Brian Yorkey and Tom Kitt. After a developmental lab in April 2013 featuring Idina Menzel and directed by Michael Brief, If Then staged an out-of-town tryout at the National Theater Washington, D.C. from November 5th to December 8th, 2013. After that, it was time to make its move to Broadway, which makes this the perfect time to introduce our design team. Book and lyrics were by Brian Yorkey, music by Tom Kitt, director Michael Grief, choreographer Larry Kaiguin, set design by Mark Vandelin, costume design by Emily Rebholtz, Lighting design, Kenneth Posner. Sound design, Brian Rowan. Wig and hair design by David Brian Brown. Makeup design by Joe DeLude II. The show would roll up to the Richard Rogers Theater on March 30th, 2014, where it would stay for nearly a year and 401 performances 
closing on March 22, 2015. A national tour would be mounted starting in Denver, Colorado, shortly after closing. That year, If Then would be nominated for two Tony Awards. So, let's sojourn down one of these paths to our story. Walking in the distance, looking for a stranger, looking for attention, fighting passion, burning in the soul of the heart. Elizabeth Vaughn returns to New York City to start her life over. She's 38, recently divorced, 12 years away from her beloved New York, a city planner who has only taught city planning and has never planned a city. On her first day back, she meets two friends in the park. Lucas, a friend from her undergrad years, and one-time lover long ago who now identifies as bisexual, and Kate, her spirited new neighbor. Lucas wants her to come with him to meet some of his fellow activists, gathering signatures at a table across the park. But Kate wants her to get coffee and listen to a sexy guy playing a guitar nearby. Kate calls her Liz the two of them having decided the previous night over wine, that Elizabeth should have a new name for her new life. Lucas, for his part, likes Beth. We see her go both ways, with Kate as Liz and with Lucas as Beth. Her lives diverge in that moment, and we follow them both. To make it easier to understand, we will tell you Liz's timeline and then Beth's timeline, but know that in the show, both parts happen simultaneously. So let's start with Liz. Liz goes with Kate, listens to the sexy guitar guy, meets a handsome doctor just back from a second tour overseas, now in the Army Reserves, who would like to get to know her, brushes him off, gets a phone call from a number she doesn't recognize, and doesn't take the phone call. She agrees to go with Kate to Brooklyn the next night to hear the sexy guitar guy's band. On the way there, Liz meets the soldier again on a subway. By chance, she insists, but Kate insists that it's a sign, and Liz finally takes his phone number. Liz and Josh, the doctor, meet a third time in the park, and she agrees to a dinner date. After that date, she tells him that statistics suggest there's not much chance the two of them will have a successful relationship, but he insists that you never know. And later on, after he hits it off with Kate and her girlfriend, Anne, and sets Lucas up with David, a doctor friend, Liz finally admits that he might have a chance. After deciding to spend the night with him, the following morning she confesses her fears to him, but vows to take the leap with him anyway. Some weeks later, at her 39th birthday party, she tells Josh she is pregnant and he proposes marriage. They get married, and Josh faces up to his impending fatherhood. Two years later, Liz and Lucas and David babysit her son, Jake, which prompts the two of them to consider starting a family together. And when Lucas wavers, David urges him to commit to their relationship. A couple of years later, Liz and Josh have a second son, Cooper, due to which Josh used his last deferral. Soon, Josh is called up to serve with the army overseas, where he is killed in action. Liz struggles to move on after his death, 
not wanting to confront her loss until David helps her to do so. She realizes that each person every day is always starting over. Soon, she meets Kate and Lucas in the park, some five years after the first fateful day, and she also reconnects with her old grad school friend, Stephen, whose phone call she didn't take that day five years ago, who hasn't been back in her life until now. Stephen has a job offer for her, a great one, and she accepts, ready to build something new. And now, we will switch back to Beth. Beth goes with Lucas. She gets an incoming call from an unknown number. Upon Lucas's prompting that the area code of the unknown number is that of New York City, Beth takes the phone call, which turns out to be from her grad school friend, Stephen, offering her a job. This annoys Lucas, who never liked Stephen. And we learn that Lucas has been holding a torch for Elizabeth all this time uh, that she's been away. She deflects his advances, but she does agree to go with him to a street action his group is holding the next night in Brooklyn. As the two reminisce about their college days, Lucas kisses her. As a result, the handsome soldier who was approaching her backs off. The morning after attending that protest, Beth meets Stephen at the Department of City Planning, where he offers her a job as deputy director, which she takes and soon comes to love. Lucas and the NYCC protest the redevelopment of the Far West Side Project, a project which Beth is overseeing. Stephen asks Beth to convince Lucas to back down from the project. She promises Lucas to introduce him to an editor that she knows if he helps her get the project through to the city council. The project does go through and is passed by the city council. Beth, Stephen, and the rest of the Department of City Planning celebrate its completion. Beth and Stephen prove great partners at work, but when the chemistry spills over, they have a romantic encounter, and Beth immediately regrets the moment and worries that it may seem she needs to quit her job. She calls Lucas, who comes over to her apartment and comforts her. One thing leads to another, and Beth and Lucas hook up. The following morning, Lucas asks to be more than a friend to her, but she gently sends him on his way. Kate and Anne, along with Beth's new protege, Elena, convince Beth not to quit and to seize a sudden opportunity to be director of city planning. Some weeks later, at a small birthday gathering, Beth confesses to these three women that she is pregnant, and even before she can tell Lucas that she's with child and he is the father, he proposes marriage to her. We next see her, not pregnant and alone, walking by a wedding and wondering if she'll ever meet the man she's meant to love. Two years later, she meets Lucas in a park, and we learn they haven't spoken since she had an abortion without first consulting him. Beth tries to mend their friendship, but Lucas filled with many regrets, walks away. Later, after Elena leaves Beth's employee to move west with her husband and new baby, Beth is reunited with Stephen, who wants her to come work with him again, and possibly more. She turns him down, but reflects on the life she has made for herself. After a routine business trip turns terrifying, when her plane to London makes an emergency landing in Portland, Maine, Beth calls Lucas and insists they belong in each other's lives. Lucas disclosed that Kate and Anne are facing a crisis in their marriage and are considering divorce. 
She rushes home to Kate and Anne, urging them to love while you can. Some weeks later, Beth meets her friends in the park, telling them she's decided to run for city council to start over again. A handsome doctor approaches, just back from his third tour overseas, and asks her out. In this life, at this moment, she says yes. The end. So now let's discuss the parts that we liked, that we maybe didn't like, that just tickled our fancy. So I want to just first start off by saying this was an interesting synopsis to explain, um, but um, listeners, so that you know, Hope does all of our synopses. And I thought you did a really good job because this can get very confusing on paper if you're going back and forth. Uh, when you see it on stage, you're like, ah, yes, this makes sense. When you see it on paper, you're like, huh? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very clever show that, you know, it's the whole idea, you know, will you take the red pill or the blue pill? Right. You know? That any, that one moment in your life could have a huge impact on the rest of your life. And to be able to see where both options lead and we get to see those play out simultaneously, mm-hmm. um, is really, really great. So I really enjoyed the show. And I thought it was a unique story and a storytelling way that took place. I've never seen a show like this where we got simultaneous stories side by side like that. Right. I will say that for me, the show was really confusing in the beginning. But that's also because I didn't know that it was going to be two different stories. Right. And the way that they... I didn't understand that things had shifted until I put together that in... The scenes with Liz and the scenes with Beth, they had two different color. And they had glasses and no glasses. Mm-hmm. And, and then, they had the two different names. And Liz then also and on the playbill, the two different versions also were surrounded by those colors. Right. So once I put, during intermission, I put that together and I was like, oh, I'm all there now. See, I got it by like the second or third number and I went, why does it matter? Like at first I thought the friends were just calling her by two different names, yeah. like their friends. But the minute I noticed that she had her glasses on and not on in certain parts, and I was like, it's not consistent, then I went, hold on. Especially with the doctor. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but you knew him. Oh, wait a minute. These are two different stories. Go on. And I think that might have been one hiccup with this. Is this is... You don't get a lot of shows like this. And this is where I tip my hat to a show like this. This is a show where the audience had to work. Mm -hmm. This is not a show where you sat back, you relaxed, you took in a story, you left, and that was it. This is a show that they made you work to put the pieces together. But then when you did, like a puzzle, you were like, I see what you did there. Mm -hmm. That's clever. That's really smart. And to be able also to separate and keep those storylines clear... And apart the entire time, yet at moments integrating was smart. That being said, I think that for me, it would have been a little more beneficial for a greater audience understanding if there was something in the program that just kind of like helped lead you along that, hey, this is going to be 
this and this. See, in, in this instance, I am reminded of um, a scene from The West Wing where he's running for re-election. He's at his, his announcement event, and they're all in the little room, like the green room, mm-hmm. and they're discussing the word torpor. Mm-hmm. And... And the one guy who's one of the like campaign speechwriters is like, well, I know what it means, but the rest of the people don't know what it means. Um, and um, Leo, chief of staff, walked, staff, walks in and he goes, what are we talking about? And CJ goes, we're talking about the word torpor and what it means. And um, the speechwriter goes, I know what it means, but um, uh, the people who hear the speech won't know what it means. And the president, Bartlett, answers and he goes, then they can look it up. You know, and he says, if I'm going to be the education president, I shouldn't have to play down to the lowest denominator. I should at least show that I have an education. And this is where I go, no, they shouldn't have to put something in the program to be like, here's how we're telling the story. No, we well, should, I think we as the audience should work a little bit harder and be challenged a little bit. And as, in my opinion, and this is, we're getting off topic, but a little philosophical here. We as theater audience members should just damn well go to shows. And just be challenged and, and moved by stories and not just go to stories that we're familiar with. And that's the only way we're going to see creative things like this and leave and go, oh, and then we're going to get new ways to tell stories. Because I think that's part of the charm and the creativity of the show is that it's a new way to tell a musical. And if you give that away right out of the go, you take a lot of the, the luster off of the show. I think part part of the the coolness of the show is that you have to figure out that bit. We, I, I think, modern audiences. I mean, I hate to go after audiences because I mean they are listeners just like us. We're lazy. We do not want to work when we go to a show. We don't want to think. We don't want to have to put two and two together. We don't shows that challenge an audience and make them think and make them work are not successful. Shows that you just sit and relax and take it in are successful. Case in point, the one you work for. You bring in at least $3 million a, a week for the music man. Yeah, but what, is, what do audience members have to do? There's nothing they have to do but sit there, laugh, and clap. Right. But I guess what I will say is that I guess it all comes down to how important is it for you to get your message out? Because unfortunately... Money is what makes the world go round and can keep your show going. And so mm-hmm. if you offer, I'm not saying like serve it up to them on a silver platter, but this also gives you the opportunity to be a little bit more creative in your presentation of the uh, playbill and what that means. You know, so I think that it's a great opportunity for someone who was going to do this show regionally or in a community or whatever this gives them an opportunity to understand that they're not going to get necessarily the the average or even the the more inclined theater goer they're going to get someone who's more of a casual theater goer so how do you encourage the casual theater goer to become one of those people who just goes to a show and that is a bigger question for like a broadway bulletin because we have to separate the commercial from we have to combine commercial and art we have to get away from a a hit being defined purely on finance yeah Yeah. because honestly there are great stories out there that challenge you that make you think that make you work 
but they're not always financially successful because, like I said, a lot of people want to go to the theater to escape and just unwind. And that is fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I'm also saying theater can do what this show did, which, like I said, and it, it made you... And, and, and once you put it together, once you did the work, you got to sit back and relax because you knew... You figured out and the I, game. And I guess the question that I would rather focus on is how do we get more audience members like that? We have to educate our audience members. And what I'm saying is you we have give to them a tool your... that helps to educate them mm. as an audience member. Like I said, it gives the way the gimmick. You know, I think we can agree to disagree. Uh, that's fine. But getting back to this show, um, I felt, like I said, that, that it was a new experience, not just in storytelling, but I'm also going to say design as well. Okay. And I'm going to get to that in a minute. Um, and I love the message of the show. Fate, connection, choice. That that was fantastic to me. You know, um, nothing happens just randomly. I, I love that. And to show how all that happens, how it's all interwoven. So let's d- dive into those to our boxes, if you will. Let's start with the set. Um, I really love the set. I really love the umbrellas. I remember the umbrellas from this set. Um, I loved, you know, the, the, they had this on the wall and then they turned it into the ceiling. Um, I love the subway line scene. So when they were talking about, when, when um, Beth and Stephen were talking about the Create a map. Make a Map of New York, and also when they were going onto the subway to go to Brooklyn, um, these projections, I believe they are now, yeah, um, they were on the stage and on the ceiling. You heard that right. There was a ceiling for this show. Mm-hmm. So we saw these lines get painted on the on the stage floor, up the wall, and onto the ceiling. So it was like almost like a mirror, mm-hmm. which was really great. I love how big they made the space feel with the different space uh, pieces: the apartment, the balcony, the bedroom, the city parks. Uh, the city squares, you know. I'm, I'm one one thing that comes. The two scenes that really come to my mind are when she's pregnant and she's out on like the fire escape and the party's going on inside. Well, because on one side of the stage is is the birthday party for Beth, and the other side is Liz pregnant. Well, because the pregnancies kind of happen at the same time. Well, exactly. But 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 you've got this party on stage left, and you've got Liz or Beth on stage right. On the fire escape. Mm-hmm. And she's going to be talking to um, Lucas or Josh Josh about it. But it's it feels so huge. Mm-hmm. That space just feels huge. That distance between these two. And then opening back two when they're walking to a wedding on these fourth. They have these two giant buildings and then there's this opening, right? Mm-hmm. And it just feels so big. And I found this ironic because New York streets are not that big, and yet it felt so big and spacious, mm-hmm. which I loved. Well, and I like that it felt big because it felt like there were possibilities everywhere. It, yes, yes. Now, the last thing I want to say about the set, I know this is a random thing, but I really appreciated it. I really appreciated this actual subway set. Because the perfectly off-colored yellow and orange seats and such. Yes. And I'm not just talking about like, oh, it was like yellow, like orange, orange, yellow. No, like these seats were worn. They were, you know, the subway seats, particularly like on the line we use, the one line, 
they're orange, but when they get worn, you get this like hue of yellow right where everyone sat over the years. And they had that. So if you're a New Yorker, that is exactly what the subway looks like. And rather than some romantic idea of what the subway looks like, it's real. Yeah. So you see that and you immediately are like, thank you. We're not trying to romanticize the subway. We're, it's, you know, we're realistically, that's the subway. So I appreciate that they kind of did their homework about that. Which then leads me to the costumes. I thought the costumes were really, really good. Um, I like the distinction between Liz and Beth. Glasses, blazer, sweater. Right. You had one that was very more maternal and one that was more professional. Beth had the glasses and the blazer. Liz had the sweater on. Mm-hmm. So there was that. I love LaShance's dresses and outfits. She played Kate. Loved her dresses, especially. Very colorful. And she was the very positive, outlooking, motivate. She was like the effervescent, everything will be fine, but it, it's fate, go with it, roll with it kind of character. And her outfits reflected that. Mm-hmm. She was the positive source. Um, I like the real people on the street. Now, their costumes did not make them like stand out, but they looked real. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds like kind of off, but they, they didn't look like we were costume. They looked real for where they were supposed to be, that particular part of New York. Yes, it wasn't like we were like, okay, we have to have a punk. We have to have the mom. We have to have the sporty spice. We have to have the, you know. It didn't look like that. It was just... You took a demographic of the area and what the people were They wearing. took a picture of the park that they were trying to set it at and went, okay, that's who was going to be costumed. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and then, like I said, the colors were muted. So that they, they still blended in, but they were also very present. So there wasn't like everybody was in a uniform mm-hmm. color, but they weren't like, I'm in a pink shirt. Oh my gosh, my eye goes straight well, to you. And, tends, and it also tended to be when we were with Liz, everything was kind of warm tones. When we were with Beth, everything was cool tones. Oh, you're leading me into the next thing. But before we go to the lights, I just want to say I also really love the wedding dresses. They were really, really pretty. Um, but you're right. The lights, warm tones, cool tones, you were nailing it. They were gorgeous. We're in lights now. Okay. Color palettes. Pinks, purples, blues, greens. Greens. I remember greens everywhere. Remember? They were so comforting and so creative and so imaginative. Um, so you had mentioned about like, Okay, so far we've mentioned the difference between Liz and Beth in costumes, okay? Mm-hmm. We've mentioned Liz and Beth in references and how they're addressed. The lighting also told us when it was Liz and Beth, particularly the backdrop lighting. Mm-hmm. It was pink and purple when it was Liz, and it was more blues and greens when it was Beth. So, again, if, we, if, if the audience thought a little harder, worked a little harder, found the patterns, it's there. But the thing I just remember is when I think of green on stage, I think of, like, nature re- rebirth, mm-hmm. new. And there was so much green everywhere in a lot of the scenes, particularly outside in the lighting. It was gorgeous. Um, very creative. It just added... The lighting just added this fantastic energy onto the mm-hmm. stage. It was like you it the lighting definitely directed you to want to fall in love with the city. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Th- th- that's the thing is I, I I every time I listen to this album or I think about this show, it feels like this you fall in love with New York again. 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily like have anything directly with New York. And like it, they're not just talking about New York the whole time. This is a, a story, a show about a woman. And yet I'm just like, I just love New York. And it's like, well, it references New York. But I'm like, I know, but this is the show. Well, because I, just... I feel like especially, you know, I mean, that's part of who Elizabeth is, is she is, is New a York. New Yorker. Yeah. So coming back to it and finding her love for the city, because as a New Yorker, it can be really easy to get burnt out yes. of the city. But then you, so you've got all this, these these beautiful creative colors, but then they inject this orange and yellow in certain places to really break up that comfort. Mm-hmm. So when she has that romantic moment with Stephen, or the one I mainly think about is when Josh, I hate you, I love you, mm-hmm. when she finds out that Josh is dead, mm-hmm. it's in yellow. Mm-hmm. It's in that yellow light. And it's... Um, or when she's on the plane, um, it's in blue, but then there's like this, the spotlight's like yellowish. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking hazards, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I love that. So the overall thing I think of with the show is just cool tones and just, oh, it was, re- I just love the show. I can't get, the image I can't get out of my head, I encourage you all just to Google If Then Broadway is there's a great image of like greens with the umbrellas. It's beautiful. Um, but that leads us to our direction category. Considering the story and the way it's being told, I was really impressed with the direction. You know, this, okay, so this is what this reminded me of, this creativity, okay? Follow me on this. Come okay. With, you know, in the last episode, you did your croissant analogy. We followed you on that. Follow me on this. Hal Prince... Okay, he was the director of Cabaret, and when Cabaret was uh, put on, its storytelling st- style in linear and nonlinear was groundbreaking. They didn't have an insert in the playbill to explain to them that when they did the numbers at the Cabaret, that they were, you know, standing on their own or they were commenting on what was happening, right? Mm-hmm. Audience figured that out. I think that in this show, you know, um, that Michael Grief was is breaking ground as like a Hal Prince in the way that that we're telling the story of a musical. You know, in okay. in two storylines running concurrently, okay. and also kind of interacting with each other, and maybe impacting each other a little bit because she made this choice. This is how this affected this storyline, or vice versa, and so. He's. I think the way Hal Prince introduced linear, non-linear storytelling to the musical theater, I think Michael Grief introduced concurrent storylines okay. into musical theater. So I was impressed with that. Um, and and I think I speak for both of us. At first, I was a little confused with the story, but once but once I come to the game, I I rode the ride and I was thrilled. I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Um, it was really brilliant uh, managing and balancing. All the different stories taking place and keeping that over. The biggest thing that I loved is it kept an overall arch of the show progressing. And it's not just Liz and Beth's story, right? Because mm-hmm. they, if, if you if you go back, listener, and listen to our synopsis, they both take similar kind of journeys that ultimately end in the same way. Mm-hmm. But you've also got the journeys of the other two other couples, of um, Kate and. Anne. Anne, and then Lucas and uh, Jonathan. David. David. God, I suck at names. (laughs) I really suck at names. But, you know, you've got those other two relationships, too, that are both 
going on a, on a journey with an overall arc, you know? Mm-hmm. To have all of that going on, but the audience still follows it is great. In all the reviews that I read about it, no one said that the the story got murky. Mm-mm. Like, if there was too much? No. So, all in my opinion, all the elements work very well together and help to elevate the overall message. Um, so, I want to go on to music. It's Tom Kitt. I love me some Tom Kitt. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited for Almost Famous because Tom Kitt, music. Mm. And he's such a nice guy. Um, I really, really appreciated the score a lot. Not just liked it, I appreciated it. There were several songs from the show that I just cannot get out of my head. And there's even one, actually, that I have in my book. Um, But I like how the songs... I like how different the songs are. But I also love how much of the city that the different songs encapsulate. It's very Gershwin or Bernstein-esque. You know, I can hear New York in a lot of these songs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, a Map of New York, right? Mm-hmm. That sounds, I can hear the city. Ain't No Man Manhattan, another one. Mm-hmm. Um, the opening of the second act. Jum, 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 jum. Oh, 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 yeah. It sounds like a park here Mm -hmm. in New York. Like, I can hear New York in a lot of this score. Um, And I love that. I love that Tom Kitt can take me. Before we officially moved here, this is one of my favorite albums to listen to when I missed New York because it could just transport me here. I could just put it on, and I was like, oh my god, I can just see, I can feel New York because of this album. How incredible that a composer has that ability, you know? Mm-hmm. And the score also got heavier and larger as the story and the drama built and grew. We started kind of, like, and I mean like instrumentation and orchestration-wise, and as the story got heavier, so did that orchestration, you know? Yeah. So I really like the music in this. It's really good. Uh, choreography was very simple, but very effective, yeah, right? I don't really remember much dancing. No, and that's the thing. Um, there weren't really huge dance numbers, but when there were, they were larger dance numbers. They were beautiful, and comp- and they complemented the words and the music very, very well. They married... Like there was this marrying this movement, music and lighting, this real uh, the synergy um, of it all. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful. You know what I mean? Like it formed a complete thought. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Um, you you had the cast saying one thing, and with their movement, they completed the thought, and you throw in the music which punctuated it and the lighting delivered it. So this mm-hmm. great synergy that just... Mm. I wish you guys could see the hand motions that Andrew's doing right now. It hey. really just marries the synergy of the it's thoughts and the feelings. <laughs> the show has had several notable performers, including Anthony Rapp, Miguel Cervantes, Lachance, Jen Colella, and Idina Menzel. 
So let's now talk about the impact this show has had on the theater and its history. Theatrical impact, I mean, all I really could come up with is it's a new way in which the musical is presented or told. Like I said, yeah. it's... it's Having the, that simultale- simultaneous um, alternating plots. Say the word again. I just want to hear it. Nope. <laughs> um, that's really all I could come up with. And if, if anything, um, it just uh, I, I do want to just throw another nod to Tom Kitten that his music embodied the sound of New York. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's an easy thing to do. I think the only four composers I've ever heard that might have been able to, to embody that are Tom Kitt, Stephen Sondheim, uh, Leonard Bernstein, and George Gershwin. Um, and I know a lot of people are probably yelling at me about Lin-Manuel Miranda because Hamilton. I don't think Hamilton um, uh, creates the sound in New York, though. In the Heights totally does! In the Heights creates the sound of Washington Heights. Which is in New York. No, no, I understand that, but, like, New York as a whole. Mm. I hear, and in, 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 in I mean, look, I will add Lin-Manuel to the list if that's what we're going to go off of, but I don't hear anything below Washington Heights in, in In the Heights. That's okay, I don't hear anything above the Upper West Side in any of those people's... Well, then if that's the case, in fairness, then we'll add Lin-Manuel. I think that sounds appropriate. Okay, so five composers. Other than that, I've, I don't hear composers who really just capture the sound and the pulse of New York. You know. That's fair. As for societal impact, um, okay, a whole new generation came out to see the show to see Idina. Or, as many other people know her, Adele Dazeem. That's what I was actually going to say. Was it at the Tonys or was it at the... It was at the Oscars. That John Travolta oh, okay. introduced her as Adele Dazeem. And it was like, oh, I Um And, of course, they came because of Frozen the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, so using her success with, uh, with Frozen, you know, this show helped bring a whole new audience to the theater. And what a show to come to because, like I said, it wasn't an easy show to see, but they're going and they're seeing this. And it's like, hi, guys, musical theater. Deep stories. Check it out. Catch the wave, you know? <laughs> Catch the wave. Stu, we just said that. Tell your friends. Um, I think that's really the only societal impact this had. Yeah, it didn't really have a very big impact. It didn't go out to change the world, which is fine. That's okay. Not all shows need to. I mean, it's, I, I will, I, I, if anything, it did ta- uh, sort of address, not deeply, but grieving widows of, of fallen soldiers. Eh, yeah, but Briefly, there's, there's other works that are much better for that. Yeah. So is this show still relevant? The big Mamu question. Mamu. Again, my opinion. This is a great show for college, community, and regional theaters. It's accessible and can be done on any budget. As for Broadway, I think the story and the show are very relevant and would be interested to see what a new director could do with the material. Though this show feels like it was written specifically as a vehicle for Idina Menzel, I'd like to see what a whole new cast does with it. So I'm going to throw this show in the, yeah, it's so relevant. What can you do with it? The thing with the revival is you revive it, but you can still tweak it. And everyone who put this show together are still alive so you can reach out to them and say hi I would like to rewrite this song or hi I'd like to redo this scene are you okay with that and just like the color purple when they did the musical and they tweaked things about that and it was widely successful in its revival 
I'd be interested to see now that they've done this, what can they do? What have they seen now that they may, someone maybe saw and went, if we just change this and this, hmm. everything could go better. I think that's a very interesting point. And while I would like to see that, I don't think that now is the time. That's fair. We can agree to disagree. <laughs> we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. We had the good fortune of getting to see the show once in 2014. So I hope I can speak for both of us with this first one, which is really enjoying the show. I did. I enjoyed the show. It was a good show. Meaning the cast was incredible. I remember it lightly raining after the show, which was fun. Summer in New York, lightly raining. Um... Meeting LaShawns and Jen Colella for the first time was amazing because they're both so nice. And I, I mean, I, I, they're legends, okay? LaShawns and Jen Colella, they're legends. Um, I've gotten to see LaShawns in a few shows now, Summer, The Donna Summer Musical, and Trouble in Mine. Mm-hmm. She's a phenomenal actress. And then Jen Colella, of, cl- of course, uh, I've seen in, well, we've seen in Suffs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then... Most, I mean, what one of the shows she's most known for, Come From Away. Mm-hmm. Um, she's so good. And she is just such a genuinely nice person. She's one of those actresses you meet and you're just like, please have all the success and goodness that you deserve because you put it all back out there tenfold. You mm-hmm. genuinely kind, wonderful human. Um, so I'll go see anything Jen's in. And then, of course, afterwards, we did get to meet Idina Menzel. She came out, signed, said hello. Um, she was wonderful, so that was really cool as well. So this was just a cool experience, top to bottom. Um, I, this, I think, was one of the few times we were told that she won't stop for pictures. She's just signing, don't ask her for pictures. And mm-hmm. I, and that stands out in my mind. Um, but she, yeah, we've, we've got some pictures of her, just not with, like, posing with her, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. We really need to get on, like, sharing these photos. <laughs> yeah, we do. So. Um, but, yeah, so theater's back, guys. Yay! And we hope you can join us at a show soon. You'll be able to catch If Then somewhere, I'm sure, near you soon. We also remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass. Information about our Backstage Pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hopard. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your masks on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. 
You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whispered Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Miss Darling, Mela, Loyalty Freak Music, Kevin McLeod, and Billy Murray. <laughs> <laughs>